second reading uh, this morning is Matthew chapter 11. Looks like I'm going to be reading verses 2 through 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the baptizer. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, in this season of preparation, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive you, and we confess that we are a people who are distracted and discouraged, and we need the help of your Holy Spirit to return our gaze to things which are encouraging and things which are eternal. We pray this morning that you would be present in this preaching that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled this sermon, It is the most wonderful time of the year, but I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And I've given it that title to draw attention to the curious fact that Christmas is both the most anticipated day of the year for some people, And the most dreaded day of the year for others. And I believe there is actually an important connection between these two facts. An important connection between the same day being anticipated and dreaded. And I believe that connection has a lot to do with the basic message of the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. And has a lot to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is the pivot on which all of human history turns. It is the most wonderful time of the year. But I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And if this sermon succeeds. Then my hope is that we will all experience an increase in our joy in the Lord. And when our joy in the Lord is increased, there will be the added benefit of increasing the glory that God receives, which is always 
the goal of any worship service, that God be glorified, and that in turn will produce a third effect, namely, it will make us better people. Now let me briefly explain the connection there. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer given is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, chief end is just old-fashioned language for the primary purpose of, or the reason that thing was made. You might say that the chief end of a pair of rubber boots is to keep your feet dry in wet weather. If you have a new pair of rubber boots and they keep your feet dry as you splash through the puddles, then they fulfill their chief end. They've accomplished their primary purpose. They are good rubber boots. On the other hand, if you have a pair of rubber boots with holes in the bottom and the water seeps in, then they fail to fulfill their chief end. They failed to accomplish their primary purpose, and those would be bad rubber boots, and you would throw them away. So if this sermon accomplishes its goal, which is to help us all glorify God more, then this sermon will also make us better people. This sermon will help us accomplish our primary purpose for which we have been created. In other words, the goal of this sermon is to make us all more successful, more fully actualized human beings. My goal is to guide our meditation on the Word of God in such a way that we individually and as a church experience greater joy in the Lord and as a result bring greater glory to God. And by doing those things, we will move toward a greater fulfillment of our very purpose in living. That means that my goal in today's sermon is actually rather ambitious. You can turn in your sermon evaluation forms on the way out of the service a little bit later. So how can the same day be both sweet for some people and bitter for others? Why is it that some people are blue during the most wonderful time of the year? At one level, the answer is obvious and rather simple. There is sometimes a gap between our expectations about Christmas and the reality of Christmas that we actually experience. Unhappiness, disappointment, sadness are almost always the result of the reality falling short of our expectations. And if we have high expectations we are more likely to be disappointed and unhappy and sad. And there is probably no day, except maybe my birthday or a wedding day, that has higher expectations than Christmas Day. So it's no wonder that some people find themselves sad at Christmas. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of the gap between expectation and reality and how the gap can cause unhappiness. Peter Luger's Steakhouse in Brooklyn, it's more than a 100 years old. It's one of the most celebrated restaurants in a city filled with great restaurants. In 2002, it was one of just five restaurants in the United States to be named an American classic by the James Beard Foundation. This is a place where a porterhouse steak will set you back $229. Now, in October... The New York Times gave the restaurant a scathing zero-star review. 
The headlines read, Peter Luger used to sizzle, now it sputters. Everything in this review was damaging and insulting to this restaurant. So why all the unhappiness? Why the disappointment? Why the nasty words in print? Well, because the restaurant didn't live up to his expectations. Now, I've started the practice of inviting a few people from church to my house for dinner on every other Monday. If you've never eaten at my house, let me know. I'll put you on the list. But when you come to my house for Monday dinner, you're going to eat my cooking, which isn't very fancy. And the food that I serve you will be nowhere near as good as what you'll get at Peter Luger. I promise you that. But I'm also sure that you will be perfectly happy with what I serve you. And you will thank me on the way out the door. Why? Well, because your expectations of the dining experience at the pastor's house on Monday is very different from your expectations of the dining experience at a premier New York restaurant. Come to my house, eat a mediocre meal, you'll be happy. Go to Peter Luger's, eat a much better meal, and you will be unhappy. Which is curious, isn't it? When reality doesn't meet our expectation, we're unhappy and we're disappointed. And that's how it is at Christmas. Our expectations regarding this day are sky high. And when Christmas rolls around, sometimes we feel let down. The gifts we received, well, they weren't exactly right. The guests we invited to our party, they spent the whole day arguing about Trump. Our grandkids didn't write thank you notes for the socks that we sent them. The pastor preached on double predestination on Christmas Eve. The Sopranos were screeching on Oh Holy Night, and the little drummer boy actually had the nerve to play a drum. Sometimes Christmas doesn't live up to expectations. Now those kinds of disappointments, of course, are silly and frivolous. There are other kinds of Christmas disappointments which are much more serious. Maybe this is the first Christmas since a loved one has died, and the day seems empty without them. Maybe Christmas is a time when someone in your family drinks too much and you live in fear and dread of a repeat of ugly scenes of Christmas past. Maybe your vision of Christmas includes having your children with you in church, but now they've grown up and they don't come to church anymore. Maybe your family is broken by divorce and estrangement and people who should be together aren't together or aren't speaking anymore. Or maybe you don't have a family. And all this talk about family makes you feel all the more alone. And for many people, Christmas is a time of real grief because the expectations we have of Christmas are just not in line with the reality of our lives. Now, one could say that we should just lower our expectations Regarding Christmas, maybe we should do what our Jewish friends do on Christmas and order Chinese food and go out and see a movie. If our unhappiness is the result of the gap between our expectations and our reality, maybe we would be happier if we were just to lower our expectations. There's some truth to that. Particularly if our expectations about Christmas come from the commercial world, 
that tells us that we can only be happy if we have a lot of lavish gifts, that we can only be good parents if we give a lot of lavish gifts. Lots of people, of course, are trying to make money off of Christmas by selling us stuff that we don't need. And as Christians who have been told that it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, as Christians we should fight the idea that spending a lot of money or receiving a lot of money will make us happy. It won't. I met my first Presbyterian pastor when I was five years old. My family was very poor at that time. We lived in a house without running water. His name was Ike Kim. He had been named Ike after President Eisenhower, and he grew up in North Korea. His family was persecuted because they were Christians. He broke his leg drumping from a train as he and his family escaped to South Korea. And I remember Pastor Kim telling us children in Sunday school one Sunday about Christmas in Korea, about waking up on Christmas morning to find the gift his father had left for him beside his bed. It was an orange. And I remember how rich I felt compared with this poor Korean boy because that year my Aunt Martha had sent me a beautiful pair of brown leather shoes. One strategy to reduce disappointment at Christmas might be to lower our expectations. If your disappointment with Christmas has to do with gifts you receive or gifts that you are giving, then I would certainly encourage you to use that strategy. Don't be sucked in by consumerism of the pagan world. The stuff that we give and the stuff that we receive at Christmas really isn't that important. Most of the gifts we won't even remember in a month anyway. But listen to me carefully now because what I'm going to say might actually be new. To have greater joy this Christmas season, I want to encourage you to raise your expectations. Let me say that again. To have greater joy this Christmas season, I want to encourage you to raise your expectations. However high your expectations have been in the past, I want to encourage you to raise them even higher this year. Now, I've already said that unhappiness and disappointment and sadness are the result of our reality not living up to our expectations. So raising expectations might seem to be a recipe for disaster, for greater unhappiness, greater disappointment, and greater sadness. But that's only if we pin our happiness on things of this world which are passing away rather than the things of Christ which are forever. That's only if our expectation is about this world rather than Christ's world. Jesus always made a distinction between this world and his world. Standing before Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus prays for his disciples. He says, I do not pray for this world. But for those 
whom you have given me, for they are yours. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. You sent me into the world, so I send them also into the world. The church is an alien force sent into the world. In the same way the children of Israel were an alien force sent into the land of Canaan. And as they were sent in, they were told repeatedly, don't get mixed up with the locals. Don't forget that you're separate from the Canaanites. You are no longer the chosen people if you look like, talk like, and act like those other people. To be the chosen people means that you are not assimilated to the local culture. Christians receive the same message. The Apostle Paul writes about the dangers and the temptations of looking like the world. He writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is always a temptation in the church to adopt the ideas and the values of the surrounding world. We sometimes call that being relevant. Like the Borg, however, the world can absorb and assimilate anything and we lose our identity and we cease to be the church when we're conformed to the world. So the world has all kinds of ideas about Christmas. Pagans and non-believers love the magic of Christmas. And businesses, of course, are willing to capitalize on any season to sell you more stuff to cram into your already full rented storage units. So let's lower our expectations regarding the world's view of Christmas, but let's raise our expectation regarding God's view of Christmas. And if we do that... We will experience an increase in our joy in the Lord. And when our joy in the Lord is increased, there will be an increase in the glory that God receives. And when we increase the glory that we give to God, we will be more fully alive, more fully who it is that God intended us to be. So this morning, I want to spend some time looking into the pages of Scripture to get a peek at God's expectation of Christmas. Our first reading this morning was Isaiah 35. This chapter is a messianic prophecy. It was received during a time of exile, a time when the children of Israel were living as slaves in a foreign country. This is a prophecy about the rescue and the return of the people of God to the land and to the conditions that God had intended for his people To live in. Now listen to some of the lines from this prophecy. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With recompense. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame men will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And a highway will be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. 
And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now I don't know what you think when you hear those kinds of words. But I hope you don't think that the prophet is guilty of painting too rosy a picture. I hope you don't think the prophet is indulging in hyperbole. I hope you don't think that the prophet is raising expectations of the people too high. I hope you don't think the prophet is lying. Because he's not. He's telling the God's honest truth. In fact, this prophecy, which is both about the rescue of some Jewish slaves more than 2,500 years ago, and is also about the final rescue of the church when Jesus returns, this prophecy actually doesn't tell the half of it. The event that this prophecy looks forward to is more glorious than the prophecy itself. This is not a case of overselling and under-delivering. When Jesus returns, he will come and save his people. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap and the mute will sing, and there will be no dangerous predators along the paths of our lives. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because what the prophet is looking forward to is the total restoration of paradise. A complete return to the original state of being that God intended for his people to live in. In the prophecy there is a redemption and a return of slaves to their own land, the promised land, and its glorious city Zion. But the bigger picture the prophet is pointing us to is the redemption of those of us who were slaves to sin and death and our return over a highway of holiness to a perfect city where we will live eternally in the presence of God. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of humans beginning in a perfect paradise. Losing that paradise through sin and being restored to a second perfect paradise. The first paradise, Genesis 2 and 3, was called Eden. The second paradise, Revelation 21 and 22, is called New Jerusalem. And those two paradises, creation is the way God intended it to be. And we live with God and we live with one another in perfect health and in perfect harmony. Because we're made in the image of God, because we were designed by God for a relationship with God, something in our very DNA knows that the way that we are living today is not the whole story. Something deep inside of us knows that we were meant for something bigger, for something more beautiful, for something more deeply satisfying. And until we have that, until we are finally at home in New Jerusalem, our hearts will always be hungry. Our hearts will always be a little dissatisfied. We have an appetite for God. We have a hunger for paradise. We live in this world... But we know that we've been built for another world. It's just how we're wired. Or as the Bible says it, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. 
Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is actually a very mysterious passage. Uh, Someday I'm going to preach on this. The burden of the beauty and the eternal perfection of God's design is in our heart. We don't really understand it. But in our deepest selves, we somehow know it and long for it. Now some skeptics, blind men, deaf men, some skeptics say that Such a desire for eternal perfection and divine beauty is delusional because there's no experience in this world that will satisfy that kind of deep yearning because that's not what we see around us in this world. That's what Freud said in his book, The Future of an Illusion. Freud spent his whole life haunted by... uh, Yearning that he didn't fully understand, but that he was very curious about. Sehnsucht is the word that he used for it in German. And Freud argues that this yearning, which often involves a hope for heaven and a longing for fellowship with the Creator, that this yearning is in fact a kind of delusional mental illness. C.S. Lewis who was a contemporary of Freud and who knew his work, I think has a more convincing insight about this yearning that we all have, about this eternity written in our hearts. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We're built. We are designed for divine joy, for eternal beauty. And though many things of this world hint at that beatific vision, nothing in this world fully satisfies that longing. A lot of the trouble we get ourselves into in this world is the result of trying to satisfy deep, eternal, spiritual longings with superficial, temporal things in this world, with baubles. We've been made for paradise. Eternity has been written into our DNA. We will not be fully satisfied until we have an intimate friendship with our Creator. And the prophets foretold that friendship and Jesus opened the way to that friendship. This Advent season, as we prepare to celebrate the first coming of Christ, may we also prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ. Because when Christ comes again, we're going to be swept up into his presence. And we're going to know joy and satisfaction that we've been longing for all our lives. The things of this world promise satisfaction. But they always disappoint if we expect too much of them. Now I want to encourage you to enjoy your families. To enjoy your food. To enjoy your presence this Christmas. But don't look to them for your salvation. Take pleasure in the things of this season for what they are. Hints and reminders of a greater celebration that awaits us all in New Jerusalem. Take pleasure in those things for what they are. Have fun. 
But find your deep satisfaction in Christ. For in Him alone are we fulfilled. Now let me close this sermon with a simple invitation. An invitation to come to Christ. If you have a hunger in your life that you just can't seem to satisfy, if you seem to be thirsting for things that you just can't find, let me suggest to you that what you're looking for is Jesus. You all remember the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus met one day at a public well. She had had five husbands. And she was currently living with a man that she's not married to. And we can imagine that each time she got a new man in her life, she thought, this is the one. This is the man who will satisfy me. And Jesus saw into her heart and he diagnosed her spiritual thirst that what she needed was not another man. What she longed for was not the things of this world. What would slake her thirst was not more stuff that's just passing away anyway. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water of Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We were made by God. We were made for God. And until we rest in God, we will not be content. Some of you this morning are genuinely discontent. Things are not the way they should be in your world. And you keep thinking that if things were just a little different, that you'd be happy. Maybe some of you have reached a point of disillusionment where you are thinking that maybe you need to lower your expectations for your life so you won't be so disappointed. Let me suggest to you, in complete humility, that our problem is not our circumstances. We can have thousands of dollars of Christmas gifts and still be discontent. Or we can have nothing but a single orange and feel ourselves rich. Our problem is not our circumstances. Our problem is our relationship with God. And so this morning I want to remind you that you have been made for paradise. Eternity has been written into your DNA. You were designed for friendship and fellowship with the creator of the universe. And so rather than lowering your expectations, I want to encourage you to raise your expectations. I want to encourage you to expect happiness beyond your wildest imagination. I want to encourage you to expect perfect health and eternal life. I want to encourage you to expect a fascinating, interesting, fulfilling life. I want to encourage you to expect to be deeply known and deeply loved. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those of us who were stumbling around, lost, wandering, looking for satisfaction in all kinds of crazy places. Jesus came into this world to redeem and to restore people to the fellowship that they had lost with God the Father. Jesus came into this world to return us to paradise. And he had to die to make that a reality. 
Because his death washes away our sins. And our sin is what stands between us and a full relationship with God. By turning to Christ today, by turning away from all of the temporary stuff that this world has to offer, you can receive forgiveness of sins You can receive adoption as a child of God. And you can begin a perfectly satisfying relationship with your God and your Creator. That won't be finished in this lifetime. This lifetime will be just the beginning. It's just the honeymoon. But it can be a sweet beginning. And once it's begun, it never ends. It goes on forever. On this, the third Sunday of Advent, as we prepare our hearts for the coming of Christmas, as we prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ, I invite you to drink deeply from the living waters that Jesus offers you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you were there at the beginning when the worlds were made. And we were made in your image. And you will be there at the end to meet us on the other side of eternity. We thank you that you have embedded in our hearts a taste, uh, an appetite, a longing for things that are bigger and better than this world. Things that are beyond. And Lord, we pray that that longing and that desire would continue to draw us forward to you. And we pray that we wouldn't be distracted by things that falsely promise to scratch that itch. Lord, we pray that you continue to draw us home to yourself. And we pray that we would be found in you. We pray that you would be our Redeemer, our Savior, our satisfaction this day and every day forward. This we pray in your wonderful name. Amen.